Hey, uh, let's get to it. Why don't you grab your Bible, turn to Zechariah chapter 13 as we continue through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible. While you're turning there, don't forget tonight, we have Sunday night worship, communion, prayer, great time at six o'clock p.m. right here in the sanctuary. You can join us here or online if you wish. Uh, I'd love to have you join us this evening at six. Zechariah chapter 12, 13 and 14, some of the most complete descriptions in the Bible of the millennial kingdom and the second coming of Christ and uh, what the Lord's plan and future for Israel and for Jerusalem. We, uh, we looked at the last two Sundays in these chapters about what's the big deal about Jerusalem? And we've been learning about that and how important Jerusalem is in God's economy and the future for Israel. And we've been doing a lot of heavy duty, hard hitting uh, Bible prophecy, which is the book of Zechariah, by the way. Um, that's what happens when you go verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, but there's also some times where we can sort of step away from the Bible prophecy part of it a little bit and just enjoy the Lord himself. Uh, that's one of the things I love to do. And, and even in the book of Zechariah, there's tucked away little truths that I don't wanna overlook. And I'd like to zoom in, if you would allow me, to one truth that's actually a, a, an amazing theme that's threaded throughout the whole Bible. Uh, and it's here in Zechariah chapter 13, verse one. Why don't we take a look? <clears throat> Zechariah 13, one. And there we read in Zechariah 13, one. In that day, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Once again, in that day, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. A fountain opened. What a glorious thing. When's this gonna happen? Well, this one literally, a fountain that we're gonna talk about literally here, is gonna be opened in that day. What day? Well, one thing, if you're reading the book of Zechariah, it's helpful to know that we're talking about the day of the Lord. Um, and that, that's why this, this theme, in fact, if you back up to chapter 12 and look back, look at verse three, and in that day, verse four, and in that day, um, verse six, in that day, verse eight, in that day, verse nine, and it shall come to pass in that day. And verse 11, and in that day. So what day are we talking about? It's, it's called the day of the Lord. Uh, look at verse one of chapter 14. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. That's the day we're talking about here. Now, just, just for clarity, if you missed our previous studies, the day of the Lord is when God looks at the earth and says, time's up. I'm gonna in intervene in the world and, and turn all these wrongs right and fix all the problems. Now, that's an important thing for you as a Christian to know because the world likes to say, if God is love, then why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? Well, there's a bunch of wrong things with that question. First of all, there are no good people. Let's get that clear right away. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not even one. So that's a false premise. There are no good people. And because of the sinfulness of humanity, we have all kinds of wretched things happening in the world. And it's not just our fault, it's also Satan, who's called the God of this world and the Prince of this world. So it makes sense why things are going the way they are today. But when is God gonna intervene? We don't know, but he will intervene. The Bible does tell us that's gonna happen. And before we get too excited about that, hopefully you better make sure you're saved and you're a Christian before that happens because what's gonna happen is the rapture of the church. That is, God's gonna take his church out of this world. Then he's gonna do what we call the tribulation period where he pours out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. That's the day of the Lord. That's the beginning of the day of the Lord. And then when he rules and reigns on this earth after the seven years of tribulation, then he's seated on the throne in Jerusalem, the city of the Lord. And then he'll uh, rule for a thousand years. What happens after a thousand years? Well, real quick, a lot of things happen at the end of the millennial kingdom. But one of the things is um, there's gonna be then God creating a new heaven and a new earth. And we all live happily ever after if you're still alive and uh, if you're a believer in Christ. However, if you're not a believer in Christ, in the day of the Lord, when the day of the Lord comes around, man, that's, that's a bad future. And you don't wanna be any part of that. So the day of the Lord is kind of a big deal when it happens. And, and the main thing you need to understand, are you saved or are you not saved from that coming day of the Lord? It's gonna be the most beautiful day uh, that we can think of if you're a Christian. 
Um, but it's gonna be a horrible day if you're a non-Christian. We'll talk about that in a, in a, in a bit. But, but basically all that to say, um, there's some good news about this day of the Lord. It's gonna, something's gonna happen. A fountain is gonna be opened, an open fountain. Now, I don't know about you, but I like the fountains, like, you know, uh, natural springs, natural fountains. I grew up in Southern Oregon where we had rivers and lakes and you could, you know, we could ride our dirt bikes up into the mountains and find waterfalls and springs. And like, it was just a cool place to swim and, and just enjoy the quality of a nice refreshing fountain of water. Um, but also not only for refreshment, but for also cleansing for a, for a bath. The fountain is open and that's our verse here. It says, there's a fountain opened to the house of David to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he's speaking specifically of the Jews at this point, and it's for their sin and for their uncleanness, the uncleanness that comes from sinfulness. There's a fountain that's gonna open. You see, the Jews are not gonna see Jesus as their Messiah until the, the tribulation period that I just talked about. Then their eyes will be opened. Right now, the Bible says blindness in part has happened to the Jews. But they're, they're gonna see that Jesus is the Messiah and there's gonna be a fountain opened both spiritually, but also literally. Um, and so that's kind of what I wanna do is, is show you this washing fountain that's gonna happen to the Jews, but also one that you and I have available even today, the fountain of cleaning water. Uh, it's great stuff. By the way, did you know that doctors, um, it took them a long, long time to see it's funny, with all our technology, you know, you'd think this one we would have learned a lot earlier, but it wasn't until the, the 1860s where doctors realized that washing your hands might be a good idea before surgery. Like, can you imagine that? Uh, you know, um, just over 100 years ago, they thought, oh yeah, I probably should wash our hands. In 1818, uh, Ignaz Philippe um, Semmelweis, um, a Hungarian doctor, uh, was, was uh, a doctor during a time there in 1818 where women were dying in the droves during childbirth. And they didn't really know why, but there were several hospitals particularly where their uh, mortality rate of childbirth women was uh, skyrocketing and, and they were just trying to figure it out. They gave it a name, they called it childbed fever. Um, or they also, uh, they also called it perpetual fever. And they didn't know why these women were getting fevers and then just dying. Um, so this doctor, uh, Semmelweis, he started to wonder if um, there was a problem with their daily routines. You see, in those days, in those hospitals, um, the doctors would start their day out in the morgue and they'd do their forensic work on the um, dead bodies, uh, the cadavers, and handle you know, all this uh, stuff down there that was you know, bad stuff. And then they'd go up into the birthing units and help deliver babies and they wouldn't wash their hands between those operations. And you know, today we go, oh, that's horrible, but they didn't even know that. But this doctor, Semmelweis, he said, something's up with that. And so he began to do his own studies and started washing his hands regularly with a sort of a, a bleach, chlorine bleach sort of uh, uh, configuration. And, and he'd wash his hands between things. And suddenly his, his uh, pregnant mothers were surviving way more than all the other doctors. He did this study for 11 years and his rate was uh, almost perfect compared to all the doc other doctors. And so he spent his life sort of debating and lecturing the last parts of his life, uh, debating with his colleagues. In fact, there's one written down argument that he was making with these doctors of that day. He said this, and I'll quote, perpetual fever is caused by decomposed material conveyed to a wound. I have shown how it can be prevented. I have proved all that I have said, but while we talk, 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 gentlemen, women are dying. I'm not asking the world, uh, he said, I'm not asking world-shaking uh, practice. I'm asking you only to wash, for God's sake, wash your hands. <laughs> that was one of his appeal that he made to the doctors, but virtually no one believed him back in 1818. Doctors, midwives, they said, we've been delivering babies for thousands of years and we don't need some outspoken Hungarian to tell us to change now. Sad to say, Semmelweis died insane at the age of 47. Um, his wash basins were discarded, his colleagues laughing at all of his studies uh, they laughed in his faith, face while women continued to die, one out of every six women dying in their hospitals in childbirth. You see, the thing I think about that is we live in a death world right now. Sin is the cause of death 
eternal death, spiritual death, all of the above. Death entered the world because of sin. Good news. There's a way to wash your sins away. Even as we sang in that last worship song that Jesus gave it all, all to him I owe. And our guilty stain of sin was washed by the blood of Jesus. Um, We can find ourselves dirtied from the world, but that dirtiness, that sinfulness leads to death. And that's why Jesus even talked about this. Remember when Jesus was there at the table with the disciples and he stripped himself of his, his robes there in John chapter 13, girded himself with a towel. That's something that a slave would do. And then Jesus goes around and starts washing the disciples' feet. And all the disciples are like, yeah, okay, cool, whatever. And can you get a little more between the big toe there? Thank you, yeah, whatever. It's like none of them really recognized what was happening here. God was washing their stinky feet. That's amazing just by itself. It wasn't until Peter, bless his heart, Peter kind of freaks out and he realizes what's going on. And so in John 13, verse eight, Peter says to, to Jesus, thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him and said, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, but Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. In other words, just give me a whole bath then. If I, if I, if I can't have any part with you, like Peter just pendulum swing all the time. I, I, I can relate to Peter. Poor guy, he's always saying stupid stuff. That's me pretty much. But Peter, I get him. You know, he's like, oh, you could never wash me. Oh, and so, well, give me a whole bath then, whatever. And Jesus, oh, Peter, you know. But Jesus said to him, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. Now, people that read the Bible on a surface level, they kind of go, it's like, what's Jesus talking about washing your feet? Of course, they were wearing sandals, walking in dusty roads, and their feet were dirty, so Jesus washed the feet. But you do get a sense when you read the Bible a little further that everything Jesus said was much deeper than what he was just talking about on the surface, right? Um, when he said this, Peter, unless I wash your feet, you can have no part with me. What was that all about? It has to do with this picture and illustration that we're seeing here, that Jesus says, you gotta be washed. And then when Peter says, oh, then wash my whole body, Jesus says something weird. Your whole body is clean, Peter, but it's your feet. What's going on there? Well, if you read the rest of the Bible, there's something you need to know. When you become a believer in Christ and a saved Christian, you're washed, you're clean, you're declared righteous. Positionally in Christ, you are declared pure and clean, and that's how you get to heaven. Positionally in Christ, you're declared clean. However, When you became a Christian, did you live a perfect life from that day forward? You guys look like, hmm, let me think about that. No, the answer is uh, no. You probably said 10 seconds later. Um, The thing is, you have to understand, sin is like, we we think sin is murder and adultery. It is, but it's also just a little bit of an evil thought or having a bad attitude or just being off course, even a tiny bit. Like sin is everywhere. So yes, you sinned after you became a Christian, a lot. And so did I. So you say, but Brett, then are we going to hell? See, there's some people that will try to teach you, man, you better confess your sin, every sin, or else you'll go to hell. When you die, if you're driving down the road and you think a lustful thought and all of a sudden, wham, you crash into a truck and you die, then you're going to hell because you, you didn't confess that sin. Is that the way it works? Well, there's good news for you. Jesus died how many times for the sins of the world? Once. Hebrews says Jesus died once for all sin. Um, that's all of your sins, past, present, future. And when you're in Christ, positionally, you're declared righteous. And that's good news. Well, then what's the deal with confession? Why does the Bible tell us that we're supposed to confess our sins? Well, there's an answer to that. And it's kind of important to understand, like in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what's the point then if we're forgiven, past, present, future? It's like this. And I'm gonna use an analogy that some of you older people will probably recognize. I don't know a better one, but you remember when you used to have to balance your checkbook before the digital age? You you had the bank account and they had their amount of money you had in your account. And then you had your little checkbook and you had to balance the checkbook and make sure your numbers matched the bank. And if it didn't match, you had a problem. In the same way, in sort of the bank of heaven, you've got a a, a record of, of sin and wrongdoing that is then blotted out and your debt is paid in full. Meanwhile, back on earth, you're here with your little checkbook going, ooh, I sinned today. And, and there's a record of wrong that makes you feel guilty and disqualified and you know, condemned and all that. But that's where confession comes in. You need to reconcile your book with the Lord's and say, Lord, forgive me for that sin. And he forgives you and cleanses you from all unrighteousness. This is what Jesus was talking about with Peter. 
Peter, you're clean. You know, in other words, your, 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 your sins are washed away. But unless you let me continually clean the part of you that touches the earth, your feet, then I can have no part with you. In the same way, you and I, we touch the earth when we live in this life and we're dirtied by sin. And that's why you and I need to confess our sins where he is faithful and just to forgive us. So this idea of being washed from our sins, it goes right on through not only when you became a Christian, but also when you got baptized. When you got baptized as a Christian, man, what a beautiful picture of washing as you're dunked under the water in the river and you're brought up out and your sins are washed away, old things are passed away, all things become new. I love baptism. It's that outward sign of what actually God is doing inwardly. Um, as Jesus died and was buried, rose from the grave, even as you are buried in your old sins, and then you come up a new creature in Christ. Baptism is a beautiful picture of what God is doing practically. Have some of you ever felt, maybe you went and watched one of your friends get baptized, and man, I kind of wish I could be baptized again. I, I get that a lot from people asking, Pastor Brett, I want to get baptized again. My, my question would be why? Because it's a legitimate question. Now, let me just get into that since we're talking about it. Um, if you were baptized, say, like as a baby, your parents loving you, wanting to make sure and check that box, hey, we gotta make sure Junior is saved, so we're gonna get him baptized. Uh, depending on the theology of the church you were baptized in, um, the, the problem with infant baptism, I'm just gonna say it, it's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible do you see that. That's stuff that loving parents came up with, thought, let's check the box for Junior and make sure they're saved and we'll baptize them before they even can say, you know, gag, gag, goo, goo. Um, but question, the Bible doesn't show a baby getting baptized. What you always see in the Bible is uh, older people getting baptized. And there's a word associated with baptism. Most of the time it says, repent and be baptized. Question, when you were three weeks old, could you repent of your sins? Yeah, you didn't even know what a sinner you were. Uh, you are a sinner, even at three weeks, believe it or not. The Bible says we were born in sin. It's just part of our sin nature. It's built into us. But when you get to that age where you realize, man, I'm a sinner and you repent, baptism is something you choose to do cognitively. It's something that comes from your heart toward the Lord to say, Lord, I'm gonna acknowledge what you have done for me. So um, well-meaning parents are actually, in some ways, I think doing a disservice by baptizing a baby when they're a little baby because that's not, that's not what baptism is all about. Baptism is you acknowledging what God has done for you. So if that's the case, and you're saying, Brad, I feel like I wanna get baptized, uh, but I was already baptized as an infant, What's the, what should I do? I'd say, get baptized as an adult. But Brett, I don't know, I'm, I'm a little nervous about getting baptized twice. Will God be, question, do you think God's in heaven going, what a jerk, wants to be baptized again? <laughs> you think that's God? Is that the heart of the Father in heaven? Or would the Lord say, man, I, I, I just love that my child wants to do that as an outward sign and just expression of what happened. Like, I think the Lord's gonna bless that uh, anyways. Um, Okay, but let's give you a different scenario. Let's say you were baptized as a 17-year-old kid just getting out of high school and you loved Jesus and you were following the Lord and things were good and you knew what you were doing when you got baptized. Then you went to college. <laughs> and you partied down and you got the funnel and the tube and alcohol and you were upside down and the, all that stuff that you did in the, in, in the college years and you sort of backslid. And <laughs> when I say this, every service I see people elbowing each other like, that was you. It's like, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, but, um, but you went to college and you did that. And then you came back to church after you came back to your mind after college. And you came back saying, man, I walked away from the Lord. And I, was, I was partying down and Brad, I feel like I need to be baptized again. Well, can I just say something about that? Because do you need to be baptized again? The answer, I would say is no. Um, because guess what? After everyone was baptized, we all sin after that. We all still make mistakes. And we even, some of us even backslide in the way that maybe you did. But it was a really bad backsliding. Guess what? Did you know there's something that we get to do that's part of this cleansing and washing like baptism? Baptism is something you only need to do once. But there's what I like to call the mini baptism. What's that? The act of communion. When you go to the table of the Lord, it's just as important and powerful as was your baptism. And maybe even more important that you do it on a regular basis because we all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. We make mistakes. But I love that we get to have this, this sort of mini baptism. Every time we go to the table of the Lord and, and eat of the body of Christ and drink of the cup of Christ, we're remembering what Jesus did for us. And as we drink of the cup, we know that nothing can wash away our sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're washed 
again and made new. Old things pass away, all things. Like this First John 1, 9, as we confess our sins, he is faithful just to forgive us and cleanse us. So the idea of baptism really is something you only need to do once. And when you fail, which you will, you don't need to be baptized again. You need to go back to the Lord and confess your sins. And one of the most beautiful ways I know of doing that, by the way, you can just do what First John chapter nine, chapter one, verse nine says, even without communion, you can just confess your sins. And the Lord says, I'll be faithful and just to forgive you. But there's something really unique and special about communion. And by the way, that's why, like what I announced earlier, tonight's service. I, I love having communion. Sometimes we'll do communion right here in the sanctuary on Sunday morning, like right now. We do that often. But, um, but I do like Sunday night worship because it's a special service just centered around the cup of the Lord and the bread of Christ. It's, it's a service kind of all about the Lord's table. And I love, I love Sunday night. It's only an hour long service, but it's, it's a, focused in on Jesus and the cup of Christ and the bread. Man, I, I just think that's so rich. People People that come to Sunday night, man, they always go away blessed because they've taken time and got in their car, drove back to church. People think you're crazy enough to fight the traffic at Athey Creek and go to a rainy day service at Athey Creek. And some of you are even more crazy. You go to Wednesday night Bible study for crying out loud. But to go a third time, you're officially nuts if you go at a Sunday night worship. People are gonna think you've you're joined a cult at that point. <laughs> some of you aren't laughing. You're like... <laughs> Uh, but, but all that to say, uh, Sunday night worship is rich and that's why we, we focus a whole service around communion because man, those of us, we, we need to do what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible, Paul the apostle reminded us what Jesus talked about um, when, when Jesus said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. Um, that, by the way, that's how often we should have communion service, often. Um, because whenever you go to the table, which was dinner, See, this is where I think we've kind of hurt communion by trying to make rules around communion and make sure nobody's messing it up. The church has clamped down so hard that people don't have communion very often. Some churches once a year or biannually. And man, if you don't have the guy with the pointy hat and putting the wafer on your tongue and all the stuff, then it's not even real communion. Or if you weren't baptized in that church, that's all stuff people have made up. It's just inventions of men. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. That's what the Lord says. Can I take some of those religious bondage bands off of you? For example, dads here in the sanctuary, how often do you lead your family in communion? I'm not a pastor, that's what we pay you for. You're the pastor, you're the one who's supposed to lead us in communion. Who says so? Actually, I believe that you're a pastor. No, you're a pastor, no, you're a pastor. The Bible says, you know, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and have ordained you. I believe that all of you are ordained ministers to some degree, but especially you dads at home. What would happen if you guys learned at your, at your dinner table after supper with your kids and your family for you to spend some time and talk about the Lord's table and serve communion and teach your kids how to reverence the Lord and to take communion seriously? It's as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, and you do show the Lord's death till I come. By the way, those were some of the richest family devotional times we had in my household as, as my kids were growing up. Debbie and I would serve these little cups of communion and, and, we, and we'd have it right after dinner and we'd say, uh, do a little family devotion and take time. And you know what's funny is all the rifts and their arguments and the things where we weren't getting along or grudges we were holding. It's, it's kind of funny how the communion service as a family is a beautiful reset for a family. And I think that sometimes you guys are missing out because you're not pastoring in your own home. Every dad needs to be a pastor in his own home. I would just tell you, that's something that some of you are missing out on. Uh, but Brett, there's no pointy hat and robe. Forget that stuff. You're the pastor and you don't need a pointy hat. Good news. Uh, but it goes on. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, now I'm marking that word because that's important, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth or drinketh unworthily, there's the word again, eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. It's a little bit like, you know, 1818, where why were women dying? Because the doctors weren't washing. 
And in the same way, why are people going to hell and why are people living in their sin and with guilt and burden and why are they depressed and full of anxiety? Because they've never accepted Christ and they've never believed and gone to the cleansing agent that's right there. All you gotta do is wash. And communion is one of those beautiful ways of doing that. And by the way, this word unworthily here, it doesn't mean that you have to be worthy enough to have communion. That's an unfortunate, really, translation. Uh, As I read it in the original Greek language, the idea is this. Don't go and eat and drink of the Lord without giving worth or value to the Lord's table. So you're supposed to examine your own heart and make sure that you're eating and drinking with, with a sense of reverence and honoring of the Lord, not just going through some religious ritual or just because you're hungry, you're gonna have that big full meal of that tiny piece of bread and that little cup of juice. Um, no, you gotta come with a, a, heart of, that's, that's a heart that's worthy. Um, because if you had to be worthy enough to have communion, my question is, who could have communion? We are not worthy. None of us are to have communion if that's what the rule is. The idea is though that you come giving reverence value. And that's why, by the way, the church historically has put all these rules around communion because people were being flippant about communion. So I understand why that came historically. The problem is we've become too restrictive, I think. And now a lot of people don't even take communion, but once a year or whatever, don't do that. And the reason people are weak and sick is because they've not done what 1 Corinthians 11 is telling us to do, to do this often, the act of communion. So so that's kind of the first thing we talk about when we talk about the idea of being washed and and being cleansed. Uh, Baptism is a type of baptism by water but also communion is where we go and realize that there's a cleansing that takes place, uh, uh, which is awesome. Uh, Don't forget that. Again, tonight's a great chance to take advantage of that. Um, Well, as this verse goes, however, what we're talking about here is a fountain that is opened. And I wanna just kind of focus in on this, zoom into this verse and note with me, you can jot this down if you wish in your notes, but first we have a fountain. It says that right in our text. In that day, there shall be a fountain. Zechariah is actually talking about a specific fountain that's literal and it's gonna happen, but it also literally is gonna happen, but it's gonna have a figurative picture that's really important. Uh, And I kinda wanna show you this. So fountains are a common theme in the Bible, Um, but Zechariah 13 is speaking of a specific millennial fountain that has to do with the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. So you Bible students, answer these questions for me if you will. Where is Jesus when he returns, the second coming, where is he gonna touch down on earth? Is it Dundee? Nope. Where's Jesus gonna put his foot down on the earth? Anybody? The Mount of Olives, that's the key. That's where he ascended, right? Um, And the Mount of Olives is right next to the Temple Mount. Uh, The Mount of Olives goes down to the Valley of Kidron up to the Temple Mount. But the Mount of Olives actually looks down upon the Temple Mount, kind of interesting. So Jesus is gonna touch down. What happens when his foot hits the the Mount of Olives? Anybody? It's gonna split in two, right? Earthquake, the Bible says. And then what happens, anybody? Not as many people know that. Okay, we know it splits, but what happens? Somebody said it over here. Water gushes from that Mount of Olives and makes a river. Do you guys remember the song we sing, uh, Psalm 46, God is our refuge? and strength, he's an ever help in time of need. And then the second verse goes, there is a river, the streams, whereof shall make the city of God glad. What river is gonna make the city of God glad? Jerusalem does not have a river. Uh, But the answer, it will. When Jesus returns, we get from Zechariah and some other passages as well, but Zechariah tells us the Mount of Olives will split, the river is gonna flow. In fact, let's, let's go t- uh, forward to chapter 14. Since we're here in Zechariah, you can just look to the next chapter. In chapter 14, verse eight, and there it says, and it shall be in that day, what day? The day of the Lord, that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter it shall be. So a year round river is gonna flow from Jerusalem and from the Mount of Olives and it'll flow both to the Mediterranean Sea is the, you know, um, when we talk about the former sea, that's the Eastern Sea. So that would be the Dead Sea. And then the Hinder Sea would be uh, the Mediterranean Sea. So you got the Dead Sea uh, that's, you know, um, east of Jerusalem and you got the Mediterranean that's west of Jerusalem. But this river is gonna flow both directions. 
Um, and this is the river that's talked about in Psalm 46 that will make the city of God glad. So all that to say, um, one of the things that's kind of interesting about this is after the river flows, you say, well, good for Jerusalem. They're gonna have a river flowing down to the Dead Sea and down to the Mediterranean Sea. But, but it actually goes further than that. What happens with the water that flows from Jerusalem that flows into the Dead Sea? Well, the Bible tells us prophetically, the Dead Sea is gonna come to life. Why is the Dead Sea called the Dead Sea? Well, let me show you. This is some video footage that we grabbed. Um, this cliff right here is uh, the vantage point from En Gedi where David wrote a bunch of the Psalms of the, the Bible. Um, and we hike up this cliff and we hike from the sea level, uh, which is uh, way below sea level. Uh, this is the lowest place on earth. Where that water is, that's the lowest place on earth. If you're a jogger and you happen to be at the Dead Sea, go for a run in the morning. Even I go for a run at the Dead Sea and feel great. Uh, there's so much oxygen down at the Dead Sea level. It's really great. Uh, don't run up at Mount Everest. You definitely wanna run down at the Dead Sea. Anyway, that's a whole nother thing. But the Dead Sea, everything around it is dead. Um, except for there's some critters. There's some little critters running around. But this is the vantage point from En Gedi. After we hike up there, you can look down and see this beautiful view. <laughs> there's a little hyrax up there. They're all over, along with some mountain goats and stuff. But um, the Dead Sea is, there's nothing living in it uh, because the salt content is so crazy. Um, uh, so what happens is we always go down there with Athey Creekers and we start swimming. And it's so fun, fun to go in there because it's the most salt in any body of water in the world. So when you go in there, you just, you just float. And it's just so kind of weird. Even people with no body fat, uh, you get to see what it feels like when you're Brett. Anyway, um, all that to say, you just float in the water. It's awesome. Um, now the salt content, you have, to, you have to be careful. If you splash somebody with your arm, you end up with like an abrasion on your arm like the next day because the salt crystals. But this is Mike and Jed. Some of our, that's one of our elders right there floating. Look at that. Uh, I, love, I love this. And, and in fact, uh, we have fun not only with the water and the salt and everything, but also the mud. There's some, um, the mud is, they say it's healing. I used to be doubtful about the healing mud, especially when I'd see Athey Creekers all daubed up with mud. There's some of the girls, there's the Lawton family, another one of our elders and half our staff. And then Joey and Gabe and some of the guys there uh, all mudded up. There's David Frost, uh, is right back, like, nice look. But the mud there at the Dead Sea is, is um, they say it's good for your skin. I used to be doubtful, by the way, all this. I'm not really into the whole essential oil thing. Debbie is, uh, just for, but I, essential oils, health food stuff, not my thing. So when people say the Dead Sea is full of healing and natural stuff, I'm like, yeah, whatever. But I have to confess, uh, my daughter Brooke went um, uh, a few years back, we, we were in Israel together with uh, one of our groups and she had a, a wound on her leg, a big gash in her leg that was pretty brutal. And we were like almost wondering, was she gonna go to Israel with us? Cause it was that bad. It was a bad uh, wound on her leg. And when we got to the Dead Sea, every, even our tour guys like, yeah, whatever you do, don't go in the Dead Sea, that, that's gonna sting. But Brooke, my daughter, she's kind of tough. She says, I'm in Israel, I'm not gonna bypass swimming in the Dead Sea. So she went in there and swam around. It stung a little bit while she was in there, but I'm not kidding you. I, I mean, I, I hate to admit it because all these wackos that are saying, there's herbal qualities of the Red Sea. Um, <laughs> I have to admit they're right. Because um, Brooke, I'm not kidding. We were all marveling, uh, those that knew, because the day before her, her leg was all bashed and wounded and scabbed and all that, the next day after the Dead Sea, you couldn't even see where the wound was on her leg. It looked like, you know, uh, like baby skin. Like, I'm not kidding. It was kind of amazing, miraculous sort of thing. So that's why they ship the Dead Sea salt and also the mud all over the world. They, they, that's one of the things they do is harvest that here. And I'm, I'm not sure why I told you all that, but <laughs> the Dead Sea is in fact dead right now, but the Bible says that the Dead Sea in the millennial kingdom is gonna come back to life and teem with life. What's amazing is you go to Jordan Valley and you see the Sea of Galilee teeming with fish and life and it's beautiful. And, and then you just go, you know, miles down the Jordan River and you come to the Dead Sea where there's, everything's dead. What a compare and contrast. Um, now, the Dead Sea, as it turns out, is an illustration of the Jews and how there's a deadness in the Jews. When Christ comes, he's this fountain that will spring from Jerusalem, flow down the mountain into this Dead Sea and bring this Dead Sea back to life. It's the same um, story that we read about in Ezekiel 36. Remember the valley of dry bones and remember all the bones coming together? And then the Lord puts skin on the bones and then there's no life in the skin and bones, but then he breathes life. And he's talking about how the Jews are literally spiritually dead right now. 
They missed the Messiah, Jesus. But there's coming a day where all of Israel will be saved. Romans 11, 25 tells us that. And the Jews will have new life breathed in. When's that gonna happen? At the end of the tribulation period, uh, when Christ returns, he's gonna bring new life into the Jews. And the Dead Sea coming back to life is a picture of that. This millennial fountain from Jerusalem will bring the Dead Sea back to life, which is a picture of what God's gonna do uh, for the Jews. Now, this idea of God himself being the fountain of life is not a new topic for the Jews. If you read your Old Testament, it's all throughout the Bible. Um, Jeremiah, maybe you guys remember Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Not just a fountain, they forsook the Lord himself, me, the fountain of living waters. And what did they exchange it for? They hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is where the Jews said, man, we're thirsty, so we're gonna go to Baal and worship him, Ashtoreth and worship her, Chemosh and Moloch and all the other Canaanite gods and goddesses. And the Jews, they hewed out broken cisterns that couldn't hold any water. And when they were thirsty, they found themselves dying of thirst. That's what the Lord's saying here. You've, you've forsaken me, the fountain of living water for these broken down cisterns. By the way, in the land of Israel, when we go there along with Jordan and some of these other places, you'll see old ancient cisterns in your travels. Um, if you went with me to Nimrod's castle, there's a cistern that's there. Um, if you've gone to Petra, you see some cisterns that are carved out of the, the sandstone there. Um, some of those cisterns still hold water to this very day after centuries, which is amazing, but most of them don't because they've cracked with earthquakes and stuff like that. So the water leaks out. What's interesting is when you study, you know, what these ancient people did, what do you do with an old broken cistern that's cracked? There's not a lot you can do except for two things. You can make um, a tomb out of it, or you can make it into a prison or like a pit, a dungeon. And that's what they would do with these cisterns. They would take a broken cistern and bury dead people in it or make it into a prison. Isn't it interesting that the Lord uses this analogy? You've exchanged me the fountain of living water for these old broken down cisterns that don't hold any water. Prisons and tombs is really the idea. Well, Brett, those Jews, they were really bad people to do that. Well, so are we. What do we do? Well, Jesus is our living water. We know that from the Bible. And, and if you've been a new Christian, you're all excited, oh, the living water of Christ, and you know that's true. But what happens is, as you're a Christian for a long time, you forsake Jesus, the living water, and you start going to other things for satisfaction. And you, maybe you're an old crusty Christian. Are you a crusty Christian? I hope there's no crusty Christians in here, but I'll tell you what a crusty Christian is. One that kind of forgets all the goodness of being a Christian, like this one. The fountain of living water. Oh, drinking of the water of life. And, and you know, here's a dead giveaway that you're a crusty Christian. If you see a brand new Christian who's all excited about Jesus and at Ethan Creek running around saying, oh man, I'm saved and sharing with other people and teaching Sunday school and running around, oh, I love Jesus. You're like, someday that's gonna wear off. They're gonna be, they're lifting their hands now, but you just wait. You're a crusty Christian if that's you. Repent, drink of the water of life. You know what happens to an old timer Christian is you start exchanging the fountain of life back for the old watering holes, the old cisterns. For some of you, it's going to the bar after work. Oh, uh, you know, you should be home with the family and hanging out with the kids and helping out with the home, but uh, you know, it's the old watering hole and some of your friends are there. And so you go there and you're just, but, but oh, it may be fun for a moment. And there you are, you find yourself in that smoky room with people drinking and the lady over in the corner with the karaoke singing, feelings with nothing more than, hey, feelings. And you're like, ah, that's an old broken down cistern, man. And you're drinking from this dead water when you have the fountain of life. And there's nothing worse than having tasted of the fountain of life and then going to the old watering holes only to come up. Maybe it's not the bar. For some of you, maybe you younger people, it's social media old broken down cistern where you go to see what's happening with other people and hoping that your social media will sort of measure up and make your life look a certain way and you're kind of, you know, social media up. But you wonder, why do I feel so empty after looking at my Snapchat or Instagram or TikTok or whatever the latest social media, you know, fad and fancy is. By the way, this is not new, but studies have found like this, social, this article, social media doesn't alleviate boredom, study says. Um, I know that's not shocking, but the article goes on. 
While the convenience is undeniable, new research makes it more clear than ever that mindlessly checking our phones and social media profiles has become the fast food of fuel for the mind, providing the most, for the most part, empty calories and leaving us even less satisfied than before. That was what this article uh, talks about in the studies, how it's leaving especially young people more depressed than ever as they sort of look at other people's lives and don't feel like there's measures up and all that stuff. Um, social media promises big, but under delivers. And that's, there's a reason why people are depressed. Um, it's an old watering hole. You gotta watch out for these things. So all that to say, um, that's the problem. The, the idea of the fountain of living water, even the Old Testament believers knew that God was the source of that. Um, but they forsook the fountain of living water. So this is the fountain specifically that's talked about about Zachariah's fountain of the temple, uh, the Mount of Olives, water coming down, healing the river or the, um, the, the Dead Sea and stuff like that. So the fountain is, is, is there, but not only number one, do we have a fountain, but number two, we have a fountain opened. Check it out in our text. In that day, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David. Um, we know that that fountain's gonna be opened when Jesus touches down on Mount of Olives. We already talked about that. But we as New Testament church people, we know more about this fountain than the Old Testament believers. We know what Jesus had to say about being the fountain. And if Jesus is the source of life for us as New Testament believers, what does that mean to us? There was a fountain opened, just like this one's gonna be opened to the Jews, there's one already opened for you as a Christian or as a New Testament person. We have availability to the fountain that's open. When was the fountain opened for you and me? The answer, when Jesus was number one, smitten, and number two, when he was pierced. Um, you might jot these down. When was the fountain open? Number one, uh, under this second point, there's actually two subpoints. Um, one point is that he was smitten. Remember, when Jesus was smitten on the cross, wounded for our transgressions, whipped on his back, and the Old Testament foretells this, doesn't it? Um, remember the story there of the exodus of Israel and when they were leaving Egypt, they were out in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness and desert. Um, it looked like the, the landscape of the Dead Sea there, same region, but just with no water. And so they said, Moses, we're gonna die out here in the wilderness. You brought us out here to die. And they chided against Moses. And so Moses uh, was told by the Lord, take your rod, strike the rock at Horeb and water came gushing out and the people drank and were saved. It's an amazing picture. Fast forward years later in the book of Numbers, in fact, you can jot this down, Numbers chapter 20, verses eight through 12, is where we read about the second incident where the children of Israel, years later, they're out in the same wilderness. We're gonna die of thirst out here. You brought us to die out here, Moses. And Moses goes and says, Lord, you know, what, what do I do? And the Lord says, Moses, take your rod and gather the assembly together, you and your brother Aaron, and, uh, and, and this time I want you to speak to the rock at Horeb, the same rock. Speak to the rock and you'll uh, give water to the children of Israel and they'll drink. Well, Moses took his rod and got all the people together and said, you morons. That's the, if you get the Latin translation of the Hebrew Bible, that's literally the word. In the King James, he says, you rebels. But the word for rebel in the Hebrew literally is better translated moron. He calls them a bunch of morons. He says, you morons, must we fetch water for you? It's like me and the Lord, us getting water for you losers. And Moses is ticked off. And so he grabs his rod again and strikes the rock like he did many years earlier, strikes the rock when he was told by the Lord the second time to speak to the rock. And what's so amazing about that story is the grace of God it never ceases to amaze me that the water just gushed forth and the people all came up and drank and they were okay and everything was great. And I can almost picture in my mind's eye, maybe I'm making this up, I'm just giving you a red flag on this because this could be my interpretation, but I almost picture Moses and Aaron standing off in the corner as they're lapping up water, tapping their toe, looking at the people going, losers, bunch of losers, morons. Meanwhile, they're standing over there um, and the Lord says, hey, uh, Moses and Aaron, come over here for a second. So Moses and Aaron, okay, what, 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 what? and the Lord says, because, well, he put it this way. In fact, he said, because you didn't believe me. Um, that's an interesting thing the Lord accuses Moses of. He says, you didn't believe me. 
um, to sanctify me in the eyes of the people. And that's just the way of saying, you misrepresented my heart for the people. I wasn't mad at the people. I just wanted you to speak to the rock. You're the one who got mad and yelled at the people and struck the rock when I told you to speak the rock. And because you did that, you will not go into the land which I've promised the people of Israel. I remember as a kid reading that going, oh, come on, Lord, he blew his top just one little time. 40 years leading two and a half million people and he did a pretty good job. Come on, Lord, let him in. I remember feeling like, how could that be the thing that disqualifies Moses? He just got a little mad and struck the rock. He did it one time before striking the rock. It's not even that much different. Come on, Lord. Until I got older and realized how egregious Moses' behavior and what it did. You see, Moses in striking the rock the second time ruined a perfect biblical picture. And the picture is this, the rock, the first time when he struck the rock and water came forth, that's exactly what happened with Jesus. Jesus would be smitten for our transgressions and out of him would come living water, water that where you would never thirst again. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus is that rock. But the second time, what was Moses supposed to do? Speak to the rock. Why? Because he'd already been smitten. How many times did Jesus die on the cross? Once. Hebrews tells us Jesus died once for all. So Moses, by striking the rock a second time, sort of ruined the picture. The second time he was supposed to speak to the rock. And it's a big, now some of you are saying, Brett, I don't know about that. You and your biblical typology, making up stuff about Jesus being the rock. No, um, I don't, I'm not one of those guys that make up stuff. Um, the best commentary on the Bible happens to be the Bible. And the Bible tells us that rock was Jesus. In fact, check this out. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians. He said, moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant. Now that all our fathers were under the cloud, that's the cloud that led them by day, passed through the sea, that's the Red Sea that parted, were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea and did all eat the spiritual, same spiritual meat, that was manna from heaven, and did drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Paul's the one who says that that rock that followed them was Christ. So that tells us that Moses ruined the picture when he struck the rock twice and it didn't, it wasn't a good plan. That's why Moses, now again, God's grace always amazes me because you know what's so cool is did you know the Lord eventually snuck Moses into the promised land? How did God sneak Moses in? Remember in Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John were taken by Jesus to the mountain. And then all of a sudden Jesus was transfigured and there before them was Moses and Elijah and Jesus. They're all glowing. And, and remember Peter, Lord, it's good for us to be here. One for Moses, one for what? But the thing I love about that in the transfiguration, guess who's there in the promised land with Jesus? Moses. And by the way, that's how you and I are gonna to get to heaven, the same way Moses got to the promised land because God is gracious and merciful and he gets us in. That's what happened. Well, anyway, when did the water flow when the rock was smitten? When does the river of life come to you and I when Jesus died on the cross? His, uh, the fountain was open because Jesus was smitten for our sins. Smitten, that's the picture of the Bible. But not only smitten, but also point number two, the fountain open number two, um, when Jesus was pierced. When was he pierced? The main idea of the piercing is not ears for you Portlandia people or your noses or uh, other parts of your body. The idea is stuck through with a spear. When was Jesus uh, speared and, and what was foretold concerning that? Um, when Jesus died on the cross, he was mocked, beaten beyond recognition. But in Zechariah chapter 12, in fact, look, at the, look back a chapter, Zechariah 12, um, in verse 10, um, and before we read this, I gotta say, many scholars believe the chapter break is a bit unfortunate. Uh, remember, the chapters were added to your Bible centuries after we had our whole Bible compiled. So you gotta understand the chapter breaks are not necessarily the inspiration, the way they were divided up. They're helpful. I like having chapters and verses so we can tell you where we are. But most scholars put chapter 13, verse one, they say it should be connected to chapter 12 because the fountain that's being talked about is also linked to what's being talked about in chapter 12. Let's back up to verse 10. And he says, um, I will pour out upon the house of David. The same thing he was talking about in chapter 13, verse one, pouring a fountain on the house of David. 
I will, it shall come to pass in that day, I will seek to, um, pardon me, I will pour out in the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. For they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. There will come a day in that day, the day of the Lord, when the Jews' eyes are open and they see Jesus as the one who was pierced, wounded. When did Jesus get the spear in the side? Well, that's John 19, 34. But one of the soldiers came with a spear and pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. What an interesting thing that blood and water came out. If you're a forensic scientist, as some doctors have studied, they, um, they believe that Je this tells us biologically what happened and how Jesus actually died physically. We know he died because he hung on the cross for the sins of the world, but how did he physiologically die? Well, with blood and water coming out of his side, some doctors suggest that he died of literally a burst heart, that his heart literally burst, which is, by the way, one of the things about the crucifixion that would happen to a person. I'll talk about that further in just a second. But when Jesus was speared, out came blood and water. And the Bible makes a big deal out of that because it was prophesied in Zechariah that he'd be pierced for our sins. And that's when that happened. There's been whole hymns written. I love the hymn from 1772, William Cowper, who wrote, praise for the fountain opened. It's a hymn that he wrote about Zechariah 13.1. And I'll just read you a couple lines from the old hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain on this day. And there may I, through, though vile is he, wash all my sins away. Um, the, the hymn writer understood that fountain that came out of his side speaks of the fountain of forgiveness for the sins of the world. And we could go on and on about that. But the Jews are gonna see Jesus and they'll say, wait a minute, in fact, look in chapter 13, verse six, just go forward a little bit, 13, six. Um, the Jews are gonna ask Jesus when they see him, they'll say, and, and one will say to him, what are these wounds in thy hands? And then he shall answer those which I was wounded in the house of my friends. The Jews are gonna come to a realization that they were the ones who sent their Messiah to the cross. Now, before we as Gentiles get all haughty and say, yeah, those Jews, we're also the ones that sent Jesus to the cross. Don't forget that. Uh, the Jews, we would have done the same thing had we been there. We're all sinners and we all need the cross of Christ. Uh, people have used that notion that the Jews crucified Jesus and that's what led to the Holocaust and anti-Semitism around the world. So watch out for that uh, false teaching that the Jews are solely responsible for Jesus' death. Uh, we're all responsible for that. But in the millennial kingdom, even though Jesus is gonna come as a conquering king, there's still gonna be evidence of the wounds that he endured on the cross. So you have number one, a fountain. Number two, you have a fountain opened because he was um, wounded. He was uh, smitten, number one, like the rock where water came out and he was pierced where water and blood came out. That's the fountain opened. But number three point, and then we're wrapping it up here pretty soon, a fountain still open. Um, Brett, you said that already. Nope, it's still open for you and me. And the reason I say that is I'm so glad that the fountain is, is perpetual. It says here that that fountain, we read in our text, it's gonna run summer and winter, year round, and it's gonna be an everlasting fountain. That's Jesus, the fountain that we believe in. I love that. Um, you know, this, this idea of the water of life, Jesus talked all about that several times. Uh, maybe one of the biggest mentions is John chapter four. Remember the woman at, at the well? the woman of Samaria, um, and she starts talking to him about water and Jesus kind of water and she says, well, sure, but how's it that you being a Jew asked me a woman to give you water? Like that's unheard of. And Jesus said, well, if you only knew the water that I give, um, well, in fact, what did he say? Um, Jesus said, whoever drinks of this water, probably pointing to the well, he says, you'll thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I give, they'll never thirst again. But the water that I will give will be a well of water springing up into everlasting life. This is what Jesus told the woman at the well. And what an amazing message to a woman who was probably a prostitute 
who was someone who was despised by so many, especially the Jews, and the Lord giving her the everlasting life. She realized he was the Messiah. So she leaves her water pots and runs into town proclaiming Jesus, satisfied by what he said. You know, if you drink of the water of this world, you'll thirst again. That's the broken down cisterns. But if you drink of the water of Jesus, you'll never thirst again. Jesus also said in John 6, 35, not only of the water, but of the bread. He said, Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. True satisfaction to your soul comes from Jesus Christ. Whether you wanna believe it or not, it's the truth. And many of us in this room could say, yep, it's true. Jesus is the only real satisfaction. The Jews had a prophecy about the fountain that would be opened. So you know what they did? The Jews had a practice on the Feast of Tabernacles where several of the priests would hike down the hill to the pool of Siloam, fill up these buckets of water and carry them ceremonially up the hill, up the Southern steps. And then they'd go into this big celebration on the Feast of Tabernacles uh, and, and they'd pour out water. But on the last day of the Feast of, the, of Tabernacles, they do the same thing, but the last bucket they would pour out, but it would be empty. They'd leave it empty and they'd pour it out and kind of like empties. What was that? It was a symbol that the fountain would someday be opened, but it's not opened yet. The Jews realized that they hadn't met their Messiah and they would keep pouring that empty um, bucket out every year until their Messiah would come. So what's happening? Jesus is there at the Feast of Tabernacles on the last day of the feast. And what happens? Well, it's John 7, 37. And Jesus says uh, there in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Holy Spirit, he goes on to talk about. You see, Jesus um, was declaring that he was the filling of that empty bucket of the Jews. He was the Messiah and he was declaring that. By the way, you wanna know what scripture the Jews would be chanting and celebrating on the Feast of Tabernacles as they're pouring out the empty bucket? They would, they would declare Isaiah 44, three, that says this, for I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. Like the Jews were sitting there singing about the water that's coming and there's the water of life, Jesus standing on the Temple Mount that day. It's amazing. So on this category of the fountain is still open, man, his, his water doesn't run out. It continues. By the way, we know that the water is an everlasting fountain. That's good. What about the blood of Jesus? Does the blood of Jesus run out? Well, the answer is no. His mercy endures for how long? Forever. The blood of Jesus never runs out. Um, there's an interesting thing that we haven't really talked about, but remember when they speared him, we talked about the piercing. Um, why did they stick a spear in the side? Well, as it turns out, um, the, the uh, Romans, experts on death and crucifixion, um, it, it became the Passover time. And they're like, man, we don't wanna be dealing with dead bodies um, on the Passover. So we need to make sure these guys die before this all comes around. So what did the Romans do? They, they tried to keep these guys as long as possible. They keep them suffering and alive. And one of the ways they would do that is they would bend the legs as they were nailed to the cross or roped to the cross. They would bend the leg of the victim on a cross. The reason they would do this is because after a while you'd be hanging from the cross and your shoulders would pop out a socket and you'd be hanging there with muscles spasming and freaking out so badly that your muscles, muscle, your pec major muscles would start to, to spasm so bad that it would start to make you feel suffocated and your heart would be sort of compressed. And it was hard to get blood flow and oxygen. And so what they would do, they'd leave the legs bent so that the crucifixion victim could take the load off of his arms and stretch up and gasp for air. And it would leave them longer for that much, alive that much longer. So remember what the Romans said? Okay, it's time to kill these guys and make them die. So what did they do? They got a club and they went to break the legs of the guys on the cross because they knew that they wouldn't be able to give themselves that sort of artificial respiration that was required to stay alive. Once their legs were broken, they would literally suffocate to death. So they broke the thieves, cross the legs on the cross, the thieves. But when they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs because the Bible says what? He was already dead. But they did take a spear and they stuck it in his side just to make certain he was really dead. 
Um, I think that if he was still alive, as some people suggest, you know, I think he still was alive. Um, do you think he would have jolted a little bit when that sphere came in? Uh, but he didn't. They knew he was dead and out came blood and water. But the reason that's kind of cool is not only was that a fulfillment of Zachariah's prophecy that he'd be pierced with a spear in the side, but it also is another prophecy. John chapter 19 tells us, one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, forthwith came there out blood and water, and he saw, he that saw it bear record. And his record is true. He knows that he saith is true, that you might believe. For these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled. Check this out. A bone of him shall not be broken. And yet another scripture saith, they shall look on him who they have pierced. The, the one, verse 37, is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. But the bone not being broken was a fulfillment of Exodus 12, 46 and Numbers 9, 12, about not a bone of his body would be broken. You say, Brad, okay, whatever, great, filled prophecy. But what's the deal with the bone thing? I think there's more to it. And that is question, where is the blood created in your body? Anybody? In the marrow of your bones. That's where blood is. Blood comes from the marrow. I think it's an interesting illustration. Your Lord says not a bone of his body was broken. The implication most Bible scholars believe is they would have a fountain of blood that would continually come, if you would, spiritually from the body of Christ. Symbolically, his blood would continue to flow. And I like that, that there's a fountain that's still open and it remains open, the, the fountain of the cleansing blood of Christ and the water of Christ. And, and you know, in 1818, women were dying and all they needed to do is wash. So easy. Same thing today. Many people are going to hell because of their sins, but all you gotta do is wash. And it's there for the taking. I end with this last story. Um, back in the old days, some Spanish uh, you know, conquistadors or whatever, they were in a ship making their way toward the um, South America in their ship, but they became a little disoriented. They were all dying of thirst because it was hot and there wasn't much wind and they'd been going for you know, weeks and weeks and they were literally dying on their ship deck um, when suddenly another ship came up, these Peruvian guys. And the Peruvian guys said, what's wrong? They said, we need water, water. Um, they didn't know they were only about a mile and a half off ashore um, from where the Amazon River came out. The Peruvians are like, just get a bucket and dip it in the ocean, pull up water. Like, we don't need salt water, we need water. And they said, just get the bucket. So the Spaniards took the bucket and dipped it, brought it up, and to their shock, it was fresh water. Why? Because they were right at the mouth of the Amazon River that came into the ocean, the water was all fresh there. Um, they were dying, meanwhile there was fresh water under them the whole time. That's what I like in the average worldling who doesn't know what it means to be saved. Man, you're headed for destruction, hell and death eternal. Meanwhile, the water of life is right there, ready to be taken, ready to taste, the, like the psalmist, taste and see that the Lord he is good. Don't miss another day without being saved and drinking of the water of life. And if you're a crusty Christian, repent. And like the Bible says, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Man, we need to remember the joy of drinking of the water of life. Um, what a great reminder today that there's a fountain that's opened and it stays open. Praise be to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. If you would, Christians, be in an attitude of prayer with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. But I wanna ask if there's anyone here today who's never drank, tasted of the Lord. Maybe you've never accepted Christ. I'm just gonna tell you, man, this is, this is a, a great opportunity if you accept Jesus as your savior. If that's you, I'm not gonna embarrass you or make you march in front of everybody or do anything weird, but I would love to invite you to come to know Jesus and to drink of the water and taste and see. He's there to forgive you and wash you clean. The guilt that you carry, the condemnation from the mistakes you've made, the lies you've told, the, the junk you've done. The Lord says, I will remember your sins no more, but you first have to accept the work of the cross and become a Christian. What does it mean to become a Christian? Joining a fancy church? No. Carrying a huge Bible and being a weirdo? No. What is a Christian? A Christian is a person who repents of their sin and says, I am a sinner and acknowledges that before God and then confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart, Jesus, that he died on the cross for their sins and rose from the grave. Romans 10, nine and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus, that he died, that he rose again, it says you will be saved because you're drinking of the water of life. 
You know, the, the, the legends talk about the fountain of youth. People crave that. But what they're really craving is actually the fountain of Jesus, where there's an everlasting life that comes drinking of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sin, it's there for the taking. If that's you, I'd love for you just to, to pray with me a prayer of confession of faith. You can be saved right now, right here. Nothing you did to deserve it or earn it. It's all a free gift from the Lord. If that's you, would you acknowledge that with everybody else's heads bowed? And if that's you, would you look up and just give me a quick wave? And I just wanna acknowledge you before we pack it up. And then I'll say a prayer with the whole church. We'll pray a prayer of confession. If there, if there is anyone today who wants that. If that's you, just lift up your hand. Don't let me miss you. I'm gonna look around just for a second. Anybody at all, I just wanna acknowledge you guys if there is anyone. Awesome, cool. Good, good, I see you there. And you here, that's good. Back over here, awesome. Nice. Anybody else? This is great. Cool. Those of you that are lifting your hand or acknowledge that need, you know what's so great is the Lord is able to hear your prayer. He's that powerful. And remember, this isn't based on you being strong enough to do something or good enough. This is because he did it for you already. You're just receiving the gift um, and, and, and you're drinking of the fountain of life right now. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect from this day forward. It doesn't even mean your life will be rosy from this day forward. It does mean your sins are forgiven and that you will go to heaven because of God and what he did. So I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession. I'm gonna ask the whole church to pray this with me. Let's pray out loud. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose up from the grave, and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Lord, would you just reveal your love and your goodness to these people who've just confessed you, Lord. I pray that you'd wrap your loving arms around them, that they might just know the magnitude of your mercy and how true it is, how you forgive sin and you remember our sins no more. Brand new, fresh start. Lord, for the old crusty Christians here, Lord, I pray that you'd keep us our, our salvation and remembering what you did fresh. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation, Lord. And, and I pray that we would know that you are still the fountain and help us to forsake the broken down cisterns, the old watering holes, help us to go back to you, to realize you are the source of refreshment and joy that we all need. So bless the congregation today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.